Good morning. Thank you for joining us here at Calvary Baptist Church for our 10 o'clock service. I am Stephen Azera, one of the elders here of our local church. Uh, This morning, we are going to study chapter 18 of the Baptist Confession, the chapter that deals with the assurance of grace and salvation. Uh, We're going to read paragraph one of chapter 18. And the confession says, This infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith that it is always fully experienced alongside faith. But true believers may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it. Yet with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. In this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. These effects are the natural fruits of this assurance Thus, it is not at all encouraged believers to be negligent. In some ways, the subject of chapter 18 depends on what we studied previously from chapter 17. Chapter 17 of the Baptist Confession addresses the perseverance of the saints and their eternal security. Chapter 18 addresses the assurance that Christians have in the security of their salvation. Chapter 17 says Christians will persevere to the end. And chapter 18 says Christians can have confidence that it will happen. And since our security and assurance are connected, the same scriptures that prove one are used to prove the other. And you'll notice that a lot in uh, catechism classes or in the confessions, that when the confessions address our eternal security and the assurance, the confidence that we have in it, oftentimes the confessions and catechisms will use the same uh, scriptures. They'll use the same Bible verses because they're connected. Uh, God preserves Christians. God uh, gives us eternal security. And the Lord also gives us assurance and confidence that he will preserve us to the end. This morning, I want you to notice that the assurance of salvation only pertains to Christians. Again, the same principle applies to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Only true Christians persevere, and only true Christians have assurance that they will persevere to the end. Unbelievers do not receive any assurance from God that they are saved. None. They may receive assurance from their parents. Their friends may tell them that they have nothing to worry about. And even a member of the church may say, hey, Bob, yeah, 
I think you're saved. You have nothing to worry about. But that kind of assurance, if their faith is not sincere, is only carnal and of the flesh. It is assurance that they receive from humans, not from God. It isn't the Lord who's communicating assurance to an unbeliever. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God cannot be deceived from false believers. God cannot be tricked into giving assurance to unbelievers. Those who make a profession of faith, but they're not sincere, God cannot be duped by them. He cannot be deceived. God will not give them any kind of assurance. And so chapter 18 of the confession begins with a warning for insincere Christians. They are false believers. They are unregenerate men. They are the ones in the parable of the sower where the seed falls among the rocks. And because of that, they do not have the ability to establish roots. There's no sure foundation for them. And so when adversity comes to test them, what happens? Those who are not sincere, they fall away. God makes no promises to them that they will persevere. Because the faith that unbelievers claim to possess is not born out of a sincere love for God. The faith that an unbeliever claims to possess is not born out of faith in Christ. He doesn't believe that Christ can truly forgive his sins, that the death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient for him. He doesn't believe he has any need for it. But for those who do possess a sincere faith, their faith is born out of a love for God. But the one who does not, the faith that they claim to have is, is born out of works. For instance, you ever talk to someone and ask them how they became a Christian and their answer is something like, well, I I responded to the invitation at church. I, I repeated a prayer after the pastor. Or some kind of gimmick happened. You know, the church had a trunk or treat. There was a Christmas cantata and I gave my life to Jesus that night. I went to a Christian rock concert and the guy on stage gave a 30, you know, 30 second devotional and boom, my life was changed. I have a story for you. In 2005, I came to faith. I came to faith in a town in Florida, Palaka, Florida, while visiting a church for the first time in my life. I was 25 years old, never been to church. It was an evening service. The pastor preached from Jeremiah chapter 8. The Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins. 
I repented of those sins. I embraced the gospel of Christ by faith alone. I became a Christian. Two years later, I moved from Florida to Texas to go to Baba College and then eventually to seminary. But from the time that I left Florida and I moved from the church that I became a Christian, I continued to keep up with them. I listened to their services online. I listened to their sermons that they posted online. Even my wife came from that church. This past week, still following that church, watching their Facebook post, their, their live stream, I listened to my former pastor, the man who I came to saving faith from his preaching. I listened to him explain to the congregation of an outreach event that they were going to have around Halloween. Uh, this outreach event was called Biker Treat. And the Christian bikers, there's a group of Christian bikers in my hometown, uh, they, they share the gospel. They have a bike ministry. And they share the gospel with unbelieving bikers. The pastor said in his announcement that they are going to ask bikers, unbelieving bikers, for three minutes of their time in order to share the gospel with them. And if the bikers patiently listen for three minutes, then the bikers are going to have a chance to win $300. Their names are going to be placed in a raffle in order to win $300. But they must listen to the entire gospel message. If they walk away, then they don't get a chance to win $300. The pastor, my former pastor, even said, well, last year we offered them a television, but this year we thought we'd just give them the money and let them spend it on whatever they want. That's a true story. It happened. That's gimmicks. Faith that comes out of that isn't sincere faith. God does not promise any kind of assurance to a man who comes to, quote, faith through gimmicks. True faith is not born out of that kind of stuff. It's born out of the preaching of the gospel, a sincere belief in the gospel. The interesting, the interesting part is in Acts chapter 3, there's a lame beggar sitting outside Solomon's temple and he notices Peter and John going into the temple and the beggar expects for them to give him money. But the apostles say to him, I, I don't have any silver or gold. I don't have any money to give you. But my former church and my former pastor, they do have silver and gold. That lame beggar was regenerated. He obtained assurance from the Lord that he truly was saved, that his eternal life was eternally secured. The bikers who will be offered $300 they won't be regenerated. Oh, they'll probably say that they'll believe, they'll come to church for a time, but they'll fall away. It's sad because we portray the gospel as something that a man can earn through works. 
We, we got to dress it up because we really don't believe the gospel in itself is powerful to save. And so we, 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 we tie and connect it to all these bells and whistles. But you know what we're really doing when we do that? We're offering false assurance. We're giving people false faith and false assurance that they're saved. True faith isn't born out of that. It's not born out of gimmicks. It's not born out of walking an aisle. It is born of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit attaching, saving faith, connecting the gospel to faith and faith to eternal security. So the one who possesses sincere faith also possesses assurance that his faith will be kept and guarded by God for all eternity. What about false faith? False hope. The Holy Spirit leads to saving faith. Saving faith leads to the assurance of faith. Gimmicks, works, they lead to false faith and false faith leads to false hope. People who are not sincere in their faith have a false hope that they are in good standing with God. They even fool fellow members of the church. They fool their elders. But eventually the truth is revealed. And the evidence is seen by everyone. What is the evidence? They walk away. They give it up. They disregard the one thing that they claimed was the most important thing in their life. They walk away from it. We all know these people. Whatever happened to Jimmy? Man, Jimmy was on fire. He'd come to church for three years. You know, what, what happened to Jimmy? What happened to Sally, man? She, she looked like she was on fire. She came to church for a few months and Gone. I remember being messaged on Facebook years ago from a young lady who I knew in high school and she um, just got out of a relationship. Her, her boyfriend dumped her, a very serious relationship. She was in a relationship for years, unbelieving relationship. And she messaged me on Facebook asking me about finding her a church where she lived. She lived in the Jacksonville area, which is northeast of uh, Palaka. And she asked me for churches in the area. And so I gave her a list of good churches to go to. She went about a month, two months. She found another boyfriend. She never went back. Was baptized. Claimed to come to Saving Faith. But that was 12 years ago. And she's still as lost as last year's Easter eggs. People who possess a false faith have a false hope, it eventually they will fall away and they have no such assurance that God will save them. But true believers do. True and living faith produces a confidence that they're saved. Those who possess a true and living faith have assurance God will give them assurance. 
God wants us to have this assurance. He wants us to be comforted by it. And so assurance isn't something that the Lord keeps from his people. If you find yourself in season of doubt, like the confession says, that's, that's on you. You're not making your election sure. You're being negligent. It's not on the Lord. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John is saying that the scripture is written for your sake so that you will know that you truly have faith. And if you find yourself in seasons of doubt, wrestling with assurance, the scripture says, ask the Lord and he surely will give you what you ask of him. I love where the confession says that our confidence, our assurance is being certainly assured. Certainly assured. It's not conjectural. It's not, it's not based on some sort of opinion. It's not a probability. When I first became a Christian, I used to watch Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, you know the show, The Way of the Master. Uh, Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron would walk the streets with their camera and their microphone and they would ask unbelievers. They would ask them, random people, they would ask them, do you believe you will go to heaven when you die? And most of the people I remember would say, probably, I would like to. That's not assurance. That's not confidence. Probably, I hope so, I would like to. None of these statements are of confidence. Because only God's people have assurance that they possess eternal life. That's it. Only God's people. Assurance is a gift, a blessing, a benefit for the believer. So that he will know, so he won't wrestle and he won't succumb to adversity. But he would remain strong and faithful Diligent in his duty here while on earth. Not negligent, not wavering, not giving in to temptation, fear, and doubt. God gives us assurance so that we can be firm and confident. Why? To be diligent in doing the things that God wants us to do. If, if, if we wrestle with doubt, if we wrestle with concern, about our future. We're not going to want to serve. We're going to spend our whole lives in misery, in doubt. Thinking, man, which, how, how, which way is the scale going to lean at the end of my life? God does not will that for his people. What is our assurance founded on? What is, what is the foundation of our assurance? Here it is. You ready? 
the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. How can I have confidence that my sins are forgiven, that God accepts me, that I'm adopted, justified, saved, sanctified, and at the end of the day, at the end of the age, when I stand before God, how can I have confidence that God will receive me as a son? And the answer is because I receive and I believe in the righteousness of Christ. I own that righteousness for myself. I disregard my own because I don't have any. And I take up the righteousness of Christ. That's my only comfort. That's my hope. That's my assurance. Well, what do we mean the righteousness of Christ? We mean his perfect obedience to God, in particular to God's law. When the Son of God took upon human flesh, he submitted himself to the law of God. God, the Son, surrendered himself and he perfectly kept the law in thought, word, and deed. But here's here's the significance of that. Jesus didn't do this for himself. Jesus didn't take on human flesh and, 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 and live as a man in the world as the God-man so that he could prove that he was righteous. No, Jesus did this for us. It wasn't out of his own personal interest. It wasn't for himself. It had nothing to do with him. It was for the people of God. You see, in and of ourselves, we're filthy. We're full of sin. We're unpresentable before God. In fact, in and of ourselves, we're doomed. God is holy. He is just. He he is going to punish sin. He cannot dismiss it. He cannot overlook it. Since he is holy, God demands, his holiness demands that sin be punished. But God is also rich in mercy. And he sent his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And when you embrace the gospel by faith alone, God imputes the Son's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, to you. So now when you believe, God considers Christ's righteousness to be your own. You're in possession of it. So when you appear before God on the day of judgment, you don't stand before him as an unrighteous sinner. Oh, no. Instead, you stand before him as the righteousness of Christ, as the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that's the greatest news we've ever heard. I, I remember coming to Saving Faith that evening, June 12, 2005, and making sure that I understood the gospel. And I asked the pastor, 
I said, that's the gospel, right? Believing in Christ, believing that he died on the cross for my sins, that my sins would be forgiven upon believing in Christ and embracing him by faith alone, disregarding my works, disregarding any kind of righteousness that I could have, that God would no longer consider me a sinner. Right? And he said, yes, deal. And I was 25. I was fully aware of my sins and my wickedness. And to have all of that forgiven by a holy God and then to be given a a perfect righteousness, a righteousness that I've never possessed before, that's the greatest news I've ever heard. Greatest news that I've ever heard. And this is our assurance. Let me ask you, is Christ holy and perfect? Is the Son of God pure in all his conduct? Did he perfectly obey the law of God? Did he offer himself as a substitute for your sins? Do you believe that? Well, yes, I believe that. Then that's your assurance. Your assurance isn't your works. It isn't your righteousness. It is the works of Christ. It is his righteousness. It is his obedience, not yours. Can you imagine if the state of your eternity was contingent on your obedience to God's law? (laughs) That's not assurance. That's hopelessness. There isn't any assurance that I can keep God's law the next five minutes. Can you imagine if if a stopwatch was, was kept on how long you could be perfectly righteous? It wouldn't be long at all. But on the other hand, Christ revealed that he was perfectly righteous his entire life. And this is why the scripture instructs us to look to him. It's not for Christ's sakes that Christ died on the cross. It's not for Christ's sake that he submitted himself to the law. But for our sake, he's our assurance. We look to him for hope and assurance. Again, I ask you, did Jesus perfectly keep the law of God? And did he offer his perfect, perfect human body up as a sacrifice for your sins? Did God, instead of pouring his wrath on you, did God pour out his wrath on his only begotten son? And in turn, did God then take his son's righteousness and impute it to you when you believe? Yes, that's all you need for assurance. It's all you need. It's faith. Faith in the gospel. Faith in the righteousness of Christ. But if your salvation is contingent on good works, not only does your salvation receive a fatal blow, but so does your assurance. Because we can't perfectly keep God's law. Not before our salvation, not after our salvation, not ever. The Bible says it is impossible. We cannot be justified 
Our sins cannot be forgiven based on our own merit, based on our own righteousness. It's impossible for that to happen. We do not possess the necessary righteousness in order to compel a holy God to forgive us and to accept us. Only Christ possesses that necessary righteousness. Now, none of these things mean that that we won't struggle in confidence. The confession surely teaches that, that we will struggle. But here's, here's good news for you. For you who struggle, your faith isn't tied directly to hope. What I mean by that is, if you have faith, that doesn't mean that you won't struggle. It doesn't mean that you won't have seasons of doubt. Our confidence in assurance isn't infallible, right? Our, our, our assurance, our, our hope in assurance isn't infallible. God's eternal security is infallible, but believing our hope in it That'll struggle. It'll waver. Our confidence will increase and decrease. As long as we remain a part of this present age, there will be many difficulties with confidence. We'll experience many conflicts with doubt. But God doesn't want us to live in a perpetual state of desperation. God does not want us to live in a perpetual state of discouragement. It's God's will for us to have confidence, to be firm, to not live in doubt. And that's why the scripture urges us to seek assurance and to know that you know that you know you're saved. Several times scripture says to make your election sure. Well, how do we do this? The confession says by the ordinary means. You build confidence. Your faith is strengthened when you interact with the ordinary means of grace. Well, what are those? Scripture, prayer, and the sacraments. Again, we we talked about this last week in Perseverance of the Saints, and it seems like a repeat because anytime you talk about Perseverance of the Saints, you have to talk about the confidence that you are saved. They go hand in hand. God has given us disciplines to help us to have confidence that we're saved. And these disciplines are scripture, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. And baptism. Every time you see someone baptized, the Holy Spirit takes that experience and he strengthens your faith. Every time you engage with scripture by faith, the Holy Spirit will use that experience and strengthen your faith and give you assurance that you're saved. Every time you spend time in prayer, the Holy Spirit will use that experience and he will he will build on your faith and build on your assurance. It blows my mind that churches don't take the Lord's Supper weekly. I, it blows my mind. If you are a member of a church, if you are a church right now or a member of a church right now that doesn't take the Lord's Supper weekly. My question is why not? 
And, and don't give me that excuse of, well, it just becomes mundane. You don't worry about anything else you do on Sunday morning becoming mundane. Every single week you, you preach in the scripture, that never becomes mundane. Every single Sunday morning you pray in church, that doesn't become mundane. You don't worry about singing songs. You don't worry about collecting offering. You don't worry about the announcements becoming mundane. You don't worry about the fellowship becoming mundane. Only the Lord's Supper. It's weird how churches use that excuse of, well, we just don't want to become mundane for the reason of why they don't take the Lord's Supper weekly. But listen to me, pastor. You're robbing your church of the ordinary means by which God strengthens our faith. You're neglecting your church from having confidence and assurance in their salvation. Well, what does the Lord's Supper have to do with that? Because of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the gospel in elements. The bread represents the body. The, blood, the wine represents the blood. It is the gospel. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. One of the most important things that we do during the Lord's Supper is examining our own hearts. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which he assumes the whole the church has taken it weekly. You go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the part about the Lord's Supper, you can't come away with that thinking the Lord, the, the Corinthians are not taking the Lord's Supper weekly. Every, t- every time they meet, as often they gather together, they're taking the Lord's Supper. And it's a means of grace for them. Because of that examination, well, they, they look at their heart, they examine their heart, and the Holy Spirit engages with them, giving them confidence that they're truly saved. And the sins that they find in their heart, they confess them and repent of them. It's the means of grace. Don't, don't neglect your church from the ordinary means of grace whereby God strengthens our faith and gives us assurance that we are saved. Every time the gospel is preached, every time we pray in faith, every time we take the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit adds to our faith a measure of assurance and confidence every single time. The Spirit communicates to us, yes, you're truly saved. Yes, you truly believe. And we have peace. The more we have confidence that we will be saved, the more we will live as free people in the present age. As our confidence grows, trials, adversity, tribulations, they will have less and less effect on our peace. As our confidence and assurance grows, we doubt less, we fear less. We live as free people in a present age of darkness. We say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan shall buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. 
It is well with my soul. Christ is enough for our salvation. He is enough for our assurance. 